Let's start with a simple survey. Raise your hands if you'd like some extra persecution. <laughs> Philip actually volunteered in the early service, and I'm planning to follow up. <laughs> this, is a, this is a serious offer, so, so let's give it some thought. Let it, don't be shy. It's okay. Who would like more persecution in their life? I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. Well, if I can't tell you on persecution, how about at least some humiliation, scorn, people telling lies about you? Anybody, any takers for that? Okay, well, I actually didn't really think anybody was going to volunteer, other than perhaps Philip, who, like I said, I'll take care of persecution for him. It's not a surprise. Most of us do not want these things for ourselves. We don't want them for our children. We wouldn't want them for our grandchildren. And yet something that we do want for ourselves and for each of those we love is for them to know and love Jesus Christ and to share in the faith that we rely on. But biblically, these two things, persecution and faith, are a package deal. Jesus warned us in Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So which is it? What do we want for ourselves and our loved ones? Do we want peace and comfort or faith in Jesus Christ? The two are often mutually exclusive for the very simple reason that if we truly embrace the Beatitudes, these things we've been talking about for nearly two months now, the characteristics and qualities and values that we're perfectly embodied by Jesus Christ himself, we are going to wind up thinking so differently, speaking so differently, and acting so differently from the rest of the world that the world will eventually reject us and abuse us just as it rejected and abused Jesus Christ. Think about it. If we're poor in spirit and we humble ourselves before the Lord and we confess our sin and our our need for for spiritual help from God in the midst of a world that glorifies what? Self-sufficiency and arrogance. We're going to be perceived as weak and ineffective. If we are mourning the depravity and lostness of the world, we are going to be seen as stuck up, superior, self-righteous. If we are meek, humble, merciful, or gentle towards everyone around us in the world that, that is busy celebrating boldness and, and, and brashness and assertiveness, we're going to be viewed as losers and chumps and left behind in the competitive marketplace of life. If we genuinely hunger for, for righteousness and, and seek to guard the purity of our heart, what's going to happen? We're going to be viewed as Jesus freaks, prudes, judgy, closed-minded, no fun. If we're peacemakers, we're going to be seen as busybodies sticking our nose where it doesn't belong. And yet these are the attitudes embodied by Jesus Christ, and and these are the attitudes expected of every single citizen of God's kingdom. And as we think about it, we shouldn't be surprised if they are scored and rejected and even hated by the citizens of Earth's kingdom, because these values are so deeply unnatural. They are so against what the kingdoms are built on. 
And this brings us to Jesus' concluding beatitude, which addresses the price that we are willing to pay, however high, for following Jesus Christ and living out these values and virtues. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus concludes, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now in this passage, there are two statements of blessing, but we should most helpfully understand that verses 11 and 12 are a restatement and an expansion on verse 10. They serve to help us understand what it means to be persecuted. To be persecuted for righteousness' sake, and why that's a blessing. Jesus tells us that anyone persecuted for righteousness' sake is blessed. And that word that's translated here as persecuted or persecution is one that is primarily focused on physical persecution, violence, abuse, seizure of possessions, imprisonment, torture, or even death. But in verse 11, Jesus extends the blessing. He says, blessed are you. And this is a plural you. He is speaking to his entire audience, and he is speaking to us today. Blessed are you, he says, even if you don't suffer physically, but if you are reviled or slandered, hated or insulted, mocked or humiliated, degraded or lied about. And within this broader definition of suffering for Jesus Christ, we see that that comes in many different forms. It comes in the form of being lied about and and blamed for the ills of society and, and shut out of the marketplace and forced to literally live underground like the early church had to do in places. It comes in the form of being hated and rejected and shunned by your family members because of your faith, as often happens for Muslims who become a Christian and are cut off from their family. It comes in forms that some of you have experienced when you have stepped away from whatever your faith tradition or lack of faith tradition was, and you embraced salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone and have paid a price for it in your own families. Blessed suffering can look like the social costs that are increasingly being paid by professing Christians in the United States, where more and more we are automatically labeled as closed-minded, hateful, backward, racist, ignorant, or stupid simply for being a Christian. Blessed suffering can look like economic losses, rejection when you seek a job, or litigation for standing firmly in your faith and refusing to bow to the rapidly changing cultural norms of America. Blessed suffering can also look like physical suffering, like the violence and official repression experienced by the church, both in many Muslim countries, but also in North Korea, where an estimated 70,000 Christians are forced to live in prison camps for worshiping someone other than the Kim family. But I also want to be clear. 
Jesus doesn't say you're automatically blessed because you're a Christian and people don't like you. You might just be obnoxious. <laughs> the blessing is reserved for people who are mistreated for righteousness sake. And, and Jesus clarifies this in verse 11 because he says that this is being persecuted because of faith in him. Those who suffer, he says, on my account. We remember that Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of righteousness, that there is no righteousness outside of Christ, and so the blessing of persecution is for those who pay the price for their faith in and service to Jesus Christ. Verse 12 likens the experience of the suffering church to the Old Testament prophets who were hated and abused within their own country for, for delivering the unpopular messages of God. And so in the same way, the blessing is being promised to us. When we deliver the unpopular message of God, when we are hated and slandered and persecuted for proclaiming the Son of God by our words and by our actions. On the flip side, though, just remember, if you suffer because you are an obnoxious jerk, that's your problem. If you suffer because you actually are hateful or ignorant or backward or racist, there's no blessing there. D.A. Carson explains this final beatitude does not say blessed are those who are persecuted because they're objectionable or because they rave like wild-eyed fanatics or because they pursue some religio-political cause. The blessing is restricted to those who suffer persecution because of righteousness. The believers described in this passage are those determined to live like Jesus lived. So we always have to stop and think. When we're being reviled or persecuted or slandered, we need to examine, why is that happening to me? Right? Am I truly being targeted because of my faith in Jesus Christ or simply because of some negative aspect of my personality or my behavior? Don't get persecuted for the wrong reason. Always get persecuted for the right reason. <laughs> if you get persecuted for the wrong reason, that's not blessed. It's just stupid. <laughs> but when we are persecuted for the right reason, when we are truly hated and mistreated and abused for the sake of Jesus Christ, what's the blessing for us? What does Jesus lay before us? When the, when the world shuns us because we are so like Christ, that it can't stand our humility, our meekness, our mercy, our commitment to purity and righteousness, and our proclamation of the gospel of peace and reconciliation. How are we blessed? Well, Jesus says in this passage, there's a twofold blessing. One is very much in the here and now. Theirs is, present tense, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we experience the world's rejection for our faith, our willingness to suffer for Christ gives us tremendous confidence in our faith and in our salvation. Right? And that faith and salvation, we understand from Scripture, includes our citizenship in God's kingdom. And we need to be very clear, we understand, as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't just enter the kingdom of heaven on the day we die. Rather, the consistent teaching of Scripture is that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom 2,000 years ago when he first came. And it continues to grow today. We are already standing in the midst of God's kingdom if we are followers of Jesus Christ. But then we see the second blessing of this beatitude. 
in verse 12. For your reward is great in heaven. Now, everything in heaven is joyful and perfect. So we should get pretty excited at the thoughts of something that's even more great and more joyful and more perfect. So the prospect of receiving a great reward in the place that's already the most perfect and joyful place in the world should be something that we get kind of fired up about. Because regardless of what this life looks like for Christians who are suffering in North Korean prison camps or who are targeted for attacks by ISIS, this brief and momentary life, once it's over, a great eternal reward is waiting for us. So what is Jesus telling us, right? We're not in North Korea. We're not in the underground church in China. We're not in the Middle East. What is Jesus telling us in 21st century post-Christian America? There are two truths I want you to take away this morning. One, we should expect persecution for Christ. And if we expect it, we will be better prepared to handle it. And two, we should embrace persecution for Christ. Well, that's the hard one. First, we should expect persecution for Christ. This should be part of our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ who seeks earnestly to live a life of obedience that imitates your Lord and Savior, you should expect to experience some pushback from the world around you. As kingdom citizens, if we truly embrace the values that we have been studying in the Beatitudes, we're going to stand in vivid contrast to the world around us. If we don't, we've missed the point. Poverty of spirit, meekness, mournfulness, mercy, a thirst for righteousness and justice, a, a desire for purity, a passion for making peace, these go completely against the grain of our culture. I am willing to bet that there is not a single hit movie or, or, or you know, top rap song that glorifies any of these qualities. They contradict the essential values that are celebrated and rewarded in our culture today, and our culture despises them. You can't truly walk in these virtues and values on a daily basis and not experience some amount of suspicion, some amount of people being weirded out by you, some amount of rejection or abuse. And if you aren't sufficiently different from everyone around you in school or at work or in the community and to the point where, where people notice and, and think you're kind of odd or are even somewhat irritated by you, you need to examine your walk with Christ. How different are you from a non-believer? If we were to throw out Sunday morning and an investigator or a scientist were to observe you the other six and a half days of the week, would he or she notice a significant difference between you and a non-Christian? I won't dive into the numbers this morning, but statistically in the United States, the answer to that question is no for the majority of professing evangelical Christians. There is no meaningful difference in the way we live our lives the other six and a half days of the week. But the good news is, you are not a statistic, and neither am I. 
So I want to challenge you this week to consider your personal answer to that question. Is there a difference between your life six and a half days of the week and the life of a non-believer? How different are you from the people around you because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you living the Beatitudes? Do you have Christ's kingdom attitudes? Are you poor in spirit? Are you mournful, meek, merciful, righteous, pure in heart, and peacemaking? Or are you just another decent person trying to get by like everybody else? If the world's not at least a little bit annoyed about you, why not? Because we should expect persecution for Christ if we're really like him. Because Christ was persecuted. He told us this in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The world hated Jesus. Right? They mocked him. They beat him. They tortured him. They nailed him to a cross. They hated his gospel. And the gospel of Jesus Christ remains offensive to a world that really, really, really wants to excuse and save itself. And so if the world hated our master, we should expect that it will hate us. And it will hate our message because it is the same message he preached 2,000 years ago. Paul promises this to us in 2 Timothy 3.12. Right, we love the promises of Scripture. Well, here's one. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And even if we never experience significant physical persecution, let's face it, right? American Christians have it pretty good. We are unlikely to experience a lot of violence or physical persecution. But even if we don't experience that, we need to be prepared for the moment. The moment where we do face rejection or disapproval or hatred or scorn, humiliation or violence because of our faith. By preparing for it, by thinking these matters through it, it helps us to not make the wrong decision when the crisis comes. So should the day come when we are called to suffer for our Savior, by having expected persecution, we are more likely to stand firm in the face of overwhelming opposition. Expect persecution for Christ. But just as we begin to wrap our mind around that and be like, eh, maybe I could go with that, we get to the most startling part of this beatitude, which is that as Christ followers, we are to embrace persecution for Christ. Right? The, the beatitude doesn't just say, all right, let, let's set our jaw and grit our teeth, and, and we're going to get through this thing and endure for whatever we do, but, but man, I'm going to be unhappy on the inside. No. Jesus makes it a lot tougher for us because he uses two very strong words in the original language here. He says, rejoice and be glad. And this word for be glad is actually a pretty intense word. We should probably understand this better as rejoice and be extremely 
joyful in the face of persecution, insult, and slander for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, that ain't natural. But Jesus says that to suffer like he suffered is is not a burden. It is not a curse. It is a privilege and a blessing. And he commands us to celebrate it. Now, if we think that is ridiculous and unrealistic, if you look at Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41, we actually see the apostles celebrating because they take a beating for Jesus. Right, this is always one of my, my favorite th- passages because I just don't know that I've got it in me. But it says, when they when they'd called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus. We can celebrate amidst our suffering for Christ because it affirms our faith and our our passion. It gives us great confidence in our salvation because we have demonstrated that we really value Christ over comfort and status and safety. We can celebrate because throughout the history of the church, the joyful embrace of persecution has testified powerfully to an unbelieving world. Right? Nothing moved the, the Roman Empire the way they saw Christians suffer under persecution in the Colosseum and so forth. The early church apologist Tertullian astutely wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Historically, for 2,000 years, the church has grown fastest and strongest and healthiest where it has been most viciously opposed, and that is something worth celebrating. We rejoice and are extremely joyful amidst such suffering because ours is the kingdom of heaven. As I said before, Christ inaugurated God's kingdom here on earth 2,000 years ago. What, What started tiny has grown for 20 centuries and will continue to grow until the day it is perfected by Christ's return. The kingdom of heaven is ours right here, right now, because Jesus Christ paid for our citizenship with his blood. You see, in our natural state, we are citizens of whatever country we are fortunate or unfortunate enough to be born in. Or perhaps we immigrate and we are able to change our citizenship to a new country. But regardless of our status, in our natural state, we are never citizens of God's kingdom because no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we we work at trying to live a good and moral and decent life, we inevitably mess it up. We say what we shouldn't say. We look at what we shouldn't look at. We do what we shouldn't do. Or maybe we get all that stuff cleaned up and then we don't say what we should say. Or we don't do what we should do. Whatever it looks like for you or for me, whatever your personal flavor of shortcoming is, it's all sin. And any sin, whether we think it's big or small, separates us from the perfect and holy God of the universe who created us to be in relationship with Him. Because of His perfection, there is absolutely nothing we can ever do to restore that relationship that we've broken no matter how hard we try at it. And so in His great love, God provided a path to Him. A path right through 
His perfect and holy and eternal Son, Jesus Christ. When He chose to become a man, to inaugurate the kingdom, to live among us and preach the gospel of the kingdom, to live the perfect life that we can never live, to suffer and die for our sins on a Roman cross, Jesus of Nazareth became the perfect, infinite sacrifice required to pay for your sins and mine. The sins of all who turn away from them and put their faith in Him as Lord and Savior. And for those who follow Jesus and commit to the challenging life of a disciple, right? Not just some intellectual, yeah, yeah, it sounds good and that has no impact, but who truly follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, who submit their life to Christ's Lordship, we are citizens of heaven and ours is indeed the kingdom of heaven. And it is all around us here in Lake Ridge, Virginia. Our task now as kingdom citizens is to build that kingdom even more, to push back the borders of the enemy, to build Christ's church. And for that, we expect to experience insult and slander and even persecution, and we rejoice in that as confirmation of our heavenly citizenship. And then we can go beyond that and rejoice even more, because verse 12 promises, for your reward is great in heaven. We talk often of salvation, right? Our most important truth. And we rightly understand that in computer terms, it's binary. It's on or it's off. We're saved or we're not. You're never half saved. You're never sort of saved. But Jesus makes clear that for all of us who are saved, there are rewards in heaven that are proportional to our faithfulness and our obedience and our service to the Lord. And to be clear, even the very least in the kingdom of heaven, the person that Paul describes as is basically still having the smell of smoke about them, but they made it in. I love that passage. Even the least of us will rejoice eternally in the presence of God, but, but there will be tremendous rewards, even, even greater joy for those who suffer on account of Jesus Christ. There are rewards beyond imagination that await us when we are insulted, rejected, embarrassed, slandered, robbed, hurt, imprisoned, or even killed for the faith and glory of Jesus Christ. Through joyful suffering, our witness and our testimony to this broken world around us shines radiantly, and our reward is beyond conception. And so we need to each ask ourselves, what am I willing to pay for the sake of Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to lose a friend for Jesus? Would you be willing to lose your job for Jesus? Would you be willing to be trashed on social media for Jesus? Would you be willing to lose your home for Jesus? Would you be willing to lose a family relationship, someone you love dearly for Jesus? Would you be willing to experience injustice and pain and loss of freedom or loss of life for Jesus? These are brutally hard questions. And we cannot just answer them glibly, like, oh yeah, I'm all good, sure. Because the truth is, we can't really know the answer to this for certain until the decision faces us. But we need to be wrestling with them. By wrestling with them now, we are far more likely to be able to choose the path of blessing and righteousness and reward when the crisis comes. So I want you to wrestle with these questions this week. What 
Are you willing to pay for the sake of Jesus because he paid everything for your sake? As we weigh these questions, I pray that we will increasingly embrace the words of 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory. What a great phrase. Beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a heavy and challenging blessing is laid before us by your Son. Lord, I pray that you would, in coming days, search our hearts. Gird up our courage and our strength. Give us a willingness to pay the price necessary to follow your son Jesus, whether it is a small price or a social price, a relational price, a financial price, or a physical price. Whatever it is we are called to give, Lord, help us to remember that your son has given it all for us. Build in us a passion and a faithfulness to him that we would be willing to suffer, to be insulted, to be persecuted and lied about for our Lord and Savior, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. As we prepare to go out into the world this morning, we want to give you time to respond to what God has laid on your heart. I want you to, as you're singing and worshiping, also be thinking about this question, praying for the courage to face whatever challenges you experience this week because of your faith in Christ. That even if it's something small, that you would have the courage to stand up for Jesus Christ rather than just make yet another small compromise to get along and go along. That we would repent of any weakness or embarrassment we have because of Jesus Christ. We also want to give you the opportunity that if you have not yet made the most difficult decision, really, for many people, the one that leads to the path of persecution, the one that leads to the path of rejection, by embracing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want to remind you that he has already taken that shame and that suffering for your sake. I want to invite you to come forward as we worship, to, to accept him as Lord and Savior. So as we sing and as we worship, Pastor Neil and I will be up front. If there's something you'd like us to pray with you about, to pray for you about, if you want to make, make that profession of faith to the church public, we're here. Let us worship.